right, good morning. I've been trying to get some of y'all to sit closer, and since y'all wouldn't, I came down here to y'all. No, what's going on is this stage back here has been refinished, and, uh, and actually this week we could have set up on it, but uh, if you want to come down and admire it when it's done, it's like a beautiful hardwood floor in a new house, and uh, we knew we would scratch that, and so we didn't want to scratch it, so that's why we're down here, so we'll probably be down here most of the summer till school starts back, and they scratch it, and then we'll set up up there afterwards, and, and then it won't be our fault. Hey, really glad that you're here. I um, want to let you know uh, that uh, t- tonight, this afternoon, something really important starting. I want to go ahead and tell you about it now because I might forget at the end of the service. So I want to go ahead and do it now. We're uh, starting Move tonight, which is like our vacation Bible school, and it's out at Greer City Park. That starts tonight at 615 at Greer City Park and runs through Thursday night. So if you're already registered for that, if you've got a child, grandchild, neighbor child that's already registered for that, that's great. Remind them to be there. If you haven't, uh, they can come and register tonight while they're there. And, and like I said, that's down at Greer City Park uh, right there in the middle of downtown Greer, and I'm really looking forward to that. Before we jump into the message today, and we're continuing with our uh, series, One Another series today, we're going to be in in Ephesians chapter 4, so if you want to go ahead and find that on your phone or your iPad or in your Bible uh, there, but if if, uh, before we do that, I want us to do something. I want us to pray together for um, the church in Charleston, uh, for the families of the victims, and I also want us to pray for the the man who uh, committed this crime. And um, this has been obviously everywhere all week in the news. It's been on our hearts. And um, it's always tragic when anything like this happens. But to me, especially just, I guess, just as a pastor of a church, um, it just seems like the church has always been kind of safe from this. This has happened in schools. Uh, again, not that that's any less tragic, but it's happened in other places other than church. And it seems like church has been respected and that, that was lost this past week, and so I want us to pray for them. And this is what I want us to do. I want you to, uh, I want you to kind of divide up into groups of four or five, and I want you to pray. And this is what I want you to pray. First of all, this is not the time to talk in your group about flags, guns, uh, laws, any of that stuff. All right, Th- that's not the time to talk about this. We want to pray for the victims, uh, uh, the the families of the victims. We want to pray for that church. We want to pray for the city of Charleston. We support two new churches in the area, uh, one in the Hanahan area, one in the West Ashley area. Um, we want to pray for them, and, uh, and then we want to pray for the church as a whole and for our country as a whole. And so, uh, so if, if you would do that, take this, I know I just gave you like 45 minutes worth of prayers, and I'm going to give you like three minutes. But just, if y'all would just gather together in groups, we're going to just be uh, silent for a minute while you pray as families and as groups, and then I will close us in prayer. And uh, so go ahead and do that, do that right now. Father God, what we have seen in the, um, in the news this week has been um, just almost too much to comprehend and to um, also to just that it's happened right here in our state this always seemed like things that happened somewhere else and uh, father i I pray uh, first of all for all of your churches for us uh, for uh, all the churches in charleston the churches in this state uh, that this would be a time when we would uh, stand together that we would rise up as uh, believers and uh, speak words of love and forgiveness Uh, father i pray that um for the victims' uh, families that, that just had tragically uh, 
members of their family taken from them this week. I did not see this coming at all. I pray that, that you would continue to bring comfort and peace to them. We pray for uh, the church there in Charleston, the AME church where this happened, and uh, ask that even now as they're worshiping this morning, that your spirit would fill that place uh, and that they would experience things they've never experienced. They would know your love in greater ways than they ever have. Father, I pray for, uh, for Dylan Roof who committed this crime. Um, Father, he deserves um, punishment and death and hell and all for what he's done, but I do too for the things I've done. And so I pray that he would turn to you. I pray that he would give his life to you, that he'd understand um, how far he is from you and that you are his only hope. And I pray that, that Satan would not have the final victory in this by getting his soul, uh, but that God would have the victory because he would give his soul uh, to you. And I pray, Father, I pray that you would be lifted up and glorified through all of this. That the outside world is watching. And that what they would see is believers in Jesus all over this state standing behind the gospel as their hope. That they would see believers in Jesus trusting completely in you and in you alone. Just as that song we just sang, that all we have is Jesus Christ. And that that's the message that would be shared. Father God, we know that you're going to win the victory. And that you're going to win the victory in this situation. And so we're trusting in you for that. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you all for doing that, uh, for praying. And I pray that you would continue to do that um, this week as you, you think about that church and that city and our state. And um, so let's continue, to, let's continue to lift them up as uh, the days are only going to get harder, especially for the, the uh, folks who lost loved ones in that. Um, we are continuing our series of messages that we started just a couple weeks ago on the one another's. If you look throughout the New Testament, there's tons of teaching in the New Testament from Jesus, from Paul, from, from, uh, from Peter in there where it talks about how we're supposed to treat and live among one another as believers in Jesus, as churches. And so we're, that's what we're going to be talking about. Today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. I told you that a while ago, so go ahead and find that. We're gonna, the main verse is Ephesians 4.32, but I'm going to refer to a lot of the verses in that whole chapter, so I hope you've got them to look at. Uh, when I was in middle school growing up in Columbia, uh, I was on a church basketball team, and I've probably shared this with y'all before, that I was not the best person on the team. Um, I was not the worst, but I was a lot closer to being the worst than I was to being the best. And, uh, and so I played on this, this middle school basketball team, and this was, uh, and I don't know if y'all know that those of you that grew up in the upstate, every church in the upstate has a gym. There can, be a, there can be a church that has like five seats in the sanctuary, but they've got a gym. It's, that's what it is like up here. In Columbia, it wasn't like that growing up. I didn't know any church other than First Baptist Columbia, big church downtown Columbia that had a gym. So we actually practiced outside uh, before the games on Saturday morning on like somebody's... Uh, 
uh, hoop that was in their driveway. So it was really hard to like work on fast breaks and stuff. So our team wasn't very good. Uh, but, but we had this great coach. His name was Don. He was a, he was a college student when, when I was in middle school. He was, he was a student at Carolina. And uh, I had known him most of my life because he had grown up and I kind of looked up to him. And he was a perfect uh, basketball coach for middle school boys because, first of all, he was extremely patient. Uh, second of all, he would listen to us. He could tell he kind of actually enjoyed uh, coaching a little bit. He, he rarely got angry. But there was one time that I saw Don get ticked off. It wasn't at a ref. It wasn't at a parent. But it was at a guy on our team. It was a guy on our team named Wade. And, uh, and Wade was our best player. And, uh, and there was a game where, um, and we heard as guys on the team, that, that Wade had made a bet with a kid on the other team for the other church because they went to school together. He had made a bet with this kid that he could score 20 points in our game. Now, uh, Wade was our best player, but he had never scored 20 points. It's hard to score 20 points when the final scores of the game are like 22 to 8. I mean, that was, that was kind of the deal. And so, but Wade had made this bet that he was going to score 20 points in this game. And so I, what I remember was in the first half, every time he got the ball, he's just firing it up. And this was, this was before the three-point shot. Yes, kids, I am that old. There was no three-point shot. And, uh, and, and he was just firing. You know, it didn't matter if he was 30 feet from the basket or two feet from the basket and, and covered. He's just throwing up shot after shot after shot. And he made a few, but he missed a lot more than he made. He wasn't passing at all. And uh, he, he wasn't trying to, to play with the team. And I remember at halftime... Don, and this was funny to me as a kid because I remember watching this and thinking that Don had no idea what was going on, right? Because we as on the team knew that Wade had made this bet. And at halftime, Don sat him down, didn't say anything, just sat him down. And he didn't play the whole second half. And Wade's over there getting mad and mad and mad. And at the end of the game, uh, Don is, 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 is talking to the team and he said, no, Wade, I want to talk to you. And he said, I want the rest of the team to hear it. And this is a guy so patient. He went off on this dude in front of all of us. And we're all sitting there kind of scared, you know, like oh, maybe he's going to yell at us next. But, but I, the thing I remember was he kept telling him, he kept saying, the team is bigger than you, the team is bigger than you. That's what he kept talking about, that this was about team. And, uh, and, and he was mad not at Wade for, for, uh, for losing us the game because we lost most of our games anyway. He was mad at Wade because he put himself before the needs of the team. And basketball doesn't work when one player tries to put himself above the needs of the team. Well, I want you to know something today, that just like basketball, just like baseball, football, any of those kind of things, I want you to know that church is a team sport. Church is a team sport. And, and the only way that this thing works as, as church is, is that we have to be unified. When the church is unified, the church can do amazing things. But when, when we're as a church all going off on our own direction, trying to accomplish our own things, and we're not thinking about what's best for everybody, then we have tons of problems as a church. And, and the Apostle Paul, way back a long time ago, before, before the United States was founded, before there was a Greer, before there was a Greer High School, before there was a Freedom Fellowship, the Apostle Paul understood this when it comes to church. 
He understood that unity is key when it comes to church. And the reason he knew this is because Paul had started some churches. He had started several churches. He had started them, he'd gotten them going, and then he'd leave and he'd go to another town and he'd start another church. And while he was in that town starting this next church, the church that he just started, they'd start writing him letters and saying, hey, we got problems over here. People are fighting. People are arguing about this. People can't get along. We can't agree on on what the, the scripture means. We can't agree on how we're supposed to do church. And so Paul was constantly having to help these churches solve their problems. And so he understood how important it was for the church to be unified. And in Ephesians 4.3, look at Ephesians 4.3. It says there, because he's talking in Ephesians about the importance of unity. And he says that you should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says that as church people, that that should be something you're eager to do, to maintain unity in the church. Now, a lot of times as church people, we're eager to share juicy gossip, but we might not be as eager as we need to to maintain unity. We might be eager to criticize the music or criticize the pastor or criticize our small group leader, but we might not be eager as we should to maintain the unity of the church. And I love that he uses the term there, maintain, because what he's saying there is, this is not a one-time deal. It's not like you can have, okay, we're, we're not unified as a church. We're going to have a 30-minute meeting and solve this thing and be done with it and move on. No, what he's saying is, is that maintaining the unity of a church is like yard work. If you cut your grass this week and trim your bushes this week and cut all the limbs off your, your trees this week, I can guarantee you by this time next year, you're going to have to do it again. In fact, you're probably going to have to do it a lot more times about this time next year because it is constantly having to be looked at, focused on, taken care of. Maintaining unity in the church is the same way. We've got to continue to work on that. And so, um, so when, when, uh, when he talks about maintaining unity, uh, he, he begins to give some, some reasons of why that should happen. In, in Ephesians 4.17, he says that the, the unity that we have should come from new life in Jesus. Because listen to what he says. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Gentiles were the unbelievers. They were the people that didn't know the gospel. They didn't know about Jesus. They were off. They were, they were serving pagan gods. They were, had no God. They were off doing their own thing. And, and Paul is saying there, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus now. You're in a church. You're a follower of Jesus. You should live differently than those other folks do. And so he said this idea of unity that should come in a church should come from this new life you have in Christ. It should come from the fact that you don't make decisions like you used to. You don't make decisions like the people you work with. You don't live your life that way. That's where this unity comes from. And then after 417, he begins to give practical advice. If, I tell you, if a, if a church wanted to just like focus on one thing for 10 years and try to figure out how should we live among one another. Just take Ephesians chapter 4. You can forget the rest. I mean, don't forget the rest of the Bible. But, but you can put the rest of the Bible aside for a while, and it would take you forever to do all these things. Listen to what he says. Ephesians 4.25, speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.26, don't let sun go down in, on your anger. Now, how many of you have heard that when referring to a husband and a wife? We always talk about that. Yeah, you don't, you know, that's the advice we give young people. Don't go to bed angry at each other. And, uh, and in 24 years, um, I can tell you, Sherry and I have gone to bed angry at each other a few times. And, uh, and it's, it's still worked out. 
And, uh, but, but listen, when Paul says that there, he's not talking to husbands and wives. It's a good thing for husbands and wives. Did you realize when he says that he's talking to the church? He's telling church people, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So that means before you go to bed tonight, if you're upset with somebody in this congregation, you better get on the phone. You better go over to their house. You better send them an email. You better do something to get that thing right before bedtime. It's not just for husbands and wives. Then Ephesians 4.28, he says, do honest work and have something to share. See, we're not just working just for ourselves, but if we're living in, in, in a community together in a church, we're working hard not just so we can buy ourselves new things, but so we can have something to share with the other people in our congregation. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Now, how many of you grew up here and that meant don't tell dirty jokes or say cuss words? That's what I was taught in school. And not in school. My school didn't say anything about Jesus. That's what I was taught in Sunday school. And, and that's what I was taught, that, you know, you shouldn't drop, drop bombs and, and tell dirty jokes because, because the Bible says no, let no corrupting talk. All right, I'm not saying today go home and tell dirty jokes. I'm not saying today go home and cuss somebody out. But it's more than that. That's not what it's talking about there. Paul's talking about unity of a church. He's talking about corrupting talk is standing in the parking lot and saying, oh, did you hear what Cliff said today? That was really stupid. I can't believe what the elders are going to do now that Cliff's not going to be the pastor anymore. That's corrupting talk. And Paul says there's no place for it in the church. And then Ephesians 4.31, he says, put away anger and malice. Just put it away. It shouldn't be a part of your life as a believer. So he's given all this practical advice all around the idea of maintaining unity in the church. And then he drops the biggest bomb of all. Ephesians 4.32, he saves the biggest one for the very last verse of the chapter. And he says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, I just realized something when I was preparing this message a couple weeks ago. Um, June of 2015, that's, that's where we are, right? Isn't that, that the month we're in? June of 2015 marks 25 years for me of serving on a church staff. 25 years ago, June of 1990, this church in Charleston, Remount Baptist Church in in, uh, the North Charleston area, um, decided to hire me as their summer youth minister. Biggest mistake that church ever made. Um, and, uh, and I, I mean, it wasn't a mistake, but I, listen, I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know what I was doing, and they hired me anyway. And for 25 straight years now, I've served on church staff. And I've learned a lot, learned a lot about church people. I had my eyes opened to a lot of things. Um, wished I could forget some of the things that I, you know, what's the Bob Seger line? Wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. I kind of feel like that sometimes when it comes to church stuff. But here's one thing I know about church people after serving 25 years on a church staff in Charleston and in New Orleans and then two of them here in the Greer area. So two states, four churches, three cities. One thing all church people have in common is they like to disagree. In fact, church people, just about any church I've been in, they will agree on on the fact that Jesus was crucified and Jesus rose again. And then after that, that's about all they agree on. They don't agree on much else. They don't agree on how the music should sound, how loud it should be, how soft it be, should be, what, what uh, instruments should be played. They don't agree on how the teaching should be. 
uh, how long it should be, how short it should be, how funny the pastor should be, how serious he should be, what version of the Bible he should use. They don't agree on how kids' ministry should be done, how many activities, too little activities, too many activities. They don't agree on how student ministry should be done. It's just the way we are as human beings. It's the way we are as followers of Jesus. And so here, this is the reason why Ephesians 4.32 is so key to maintaining unity in the church because I can guarantee you if you stay in a church and are involved in a church longer than five minutes, you're not going to agree with everyone in that church. And so if we don't learn how to do Ephesians 4.32, if we don't learn how to do the forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, then we are going to have tons and tons of problems as churches. This is something that every one of us has to learn how to do. And I'm going to tell you right now that it's hard work. Forgiving one another is hard work. It is not easy. It is not for the faint of heart. And it doesn't just happen. It is hard work forgiving one another. And it's something that, that, that I love that in this verse, remember two weeks ago when we started the One Another series and the first one was love one another and who told the disciples they should love one another? Does anybody remember his name starts with a J? Jesus, right? Jesus told the disciples they should love one another. And how did he tell them they should love one another? How? Tenderly? Romantically? How did he tell them they should love one another? All right. If you got your Bibles, I just happen to have my notes with me. Go to John 13, 34 and 35. It's not going to be on the screen, people who didn't bring your Bibles. You're out of luck. John 13, 34 and 35. Somebody tell me in John 13, 34, how did Jesus say we should love one another? Who's got their Bible? As I have loved you. Jesus said to the disciples, love one another as I have loved you. Remember, we spent the whole time talking about how do we love people the way Jesus loved us. I love what Paul says here when it talks about forgiving one another because he does the exact same thing. He says, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus put a condition on how we should love one another. He said, you do it the way I do it. You love one another the way I love you. Paul puts a condition on forgiving one another. He says, you forgive each other the way Jesus has forgiven you. Uh, every, every building, uh, every structure uh, has some type of foundation, whether it's a doghouse, two-story house, skyscraper. It's got a foundation. And the foundation is key to the strength of the entire structure. Uh, if, if the foundation is bad, if the foundation is, is not done correctly, then the whole building is, is not as strong as it should be. And I want you to know that, that what, what the first point of today's message that I want you to remember is the foundation to be able, being able to forgive each other as Christ forgave you. Here's the foundation. Remember that you are forgiven. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been forgiven of great sin. Not because you deserved it. In fact, what you deserved, what I deserved, is to, to be sent directly to hell without pass and go, without collecting $200 for our sin. But instead, Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross 
so that we could be forgiven of that sin. The sins that we think are great and the sins that we think are small are all the same in the eyes of God. And if, and if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in the cross, if you believe in the resurrection, you have been forgiven. And you need to remember that you are forgiven. This is so vital. This is so key to being able to forgive each other is, first of all, to remember how much we have been forgiven. See, our sin is big, but our God is bigger. He, he's forgiven us of this great big sin because he's bigger than it. And, and so because of that, we've been, we've been forgiven, and we need to then be ready to forgive each other. Uh, I want you to imagine with me, if you will, that, um, <clears throat> that you had an idea for a business that you wanted to start. All right, let's say uh, you've been hanging around at PetSmart, and you notice that people spend a lot of money on their pets, and, uh, and, and that this whole you know, society is just kind of obsessed with dogs and cats and and stuff, and you said, I think I can make some money off of this, and so you read in the paper where uh, Tom Cruise or some, you know, Hollywood weirdo takes their dog to get a massage once a week and pays like a thousand bucks, and, and you said, you know what, I think one of these businesses will really make it here in the Greer Blue Ridge area, and so so you come up with this business plan, <clears throat> you, you, uh, you're going to bring in experts, you're going to open a doggy spa that offers like pedicures, and manicures, uh, I guess it'd all be pedicures for, for animals, um, and, and, uh, and, and massages, and, uh, and aromatherapy, and acupuncture, and all this stuff for animals, right? Uh, iguanas, dogs, cats, uh, canaries, whatever. And so you're going to do this. So you go down to Citizens Building and Loan, and, and uh, you meet with, with the, the loan people down there at Citizens Building and Loan, and, and you tell them, Tell them your plan. You've got a great business plan. You've got a couple of investors in. And you ask them you need a million-dollar loan because you want this thing to be top-notch. You're going to have, like, gold-plated faucets and, and uh, all this kind of stuff. And so they, uh, they, against their better judgment, they give you the loan. They give you a million dollars. And you start this business. And you're, you're hiring people and you're building stuff. And, <clears throat> and you've got all this stuff going on. Well, uh, guess what? It turns out that people in Greer and Blue Ridge really aren't like people in Hollywood. And uh, they don't want to spend that on their pets. And so you get into the business, and all of a sudden, you're, you're, missing, you're missing loan payments to the bank. And uh, you've missed your first one. You missed your second one. You get to about six months, and, and they're, they're calling you every day. They're, they're talking about getting lawyers and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and so you go down to the bank, and you sit down with the president of Citizens Building and Loan. And, and you sit uh, in, in his I assume it's a man. It's like all presidents of banks are white men. And uh, so you sit in his, his office. I'm the, I'm the son of a banker, so I, I know that's true. And uh, you sit in his office, and you, and you say, listen, I, I don't know what happened. I, I really thought this would work, and it, it didn't happen. And you just start begging him, please just give me more time. I don't know what I'm going to do. Please, whatever you do, I, just, I throw myself at the mercy of Citizens Building and Loan and you. And, and, uh, and, and the guy's listening to you, and, and then all of a sudden he, he pulls out a copy of your loan, and he says, you know what I'm going to do for you? He said, I'm going to tear this thing up. And he just tears it up. And he said, you don't have to pay it back. And you're shocked. You can't believe it. You said, what do you mean I don't have to pay it back? And, and, and he, said, he, he said, you mean I don't have to pay back the, the six months I owe you? He said, no, you don't have to pay any of it back. It's the loan's forgiven. The whole million. You don't have to pay it back. And you walk out of there just relieved. Unbelievable. Go home. Call your husband. Call your wife and <clears throat> say, Sweetie, we're, we're, we're free of the, the loan. 
And so you go back to your business, and, and you're trying to figure out how to maybe restructure and get it to work, and, and you start looking through, and you realize that there has been a few people that have been partaking in the, in the business, and you look, and there's one person that for the last three months, they've come in and gotten a $1,000 treatment for their dog, and they haven't paid you yet. And they owe you 3000 bucks. And so you wait until they've got another appointment this week. You wait till they come in. They bring their dog in. It's a cute little, you know, tiny little thing that barely uh, makes any sound. It's just the cutest little dog you've ever seen in your life. And they hand you that dog, and you take the dog, and you say, I'm never giving this dog back till you pay me the $3,000 you owe me. And in fact, if you don't pay me, I'm going to take this dog and sell it, and I'm going to call Carla Patat at Patat Law Firm, and I've got her on retainer, and we're going to sue your rear end for not only the $3,000, we are going to sue you for more because of my pain and suffering. Now, would that make any sense? You know why it wouldn't make sense? Because you've been forgiven this great debt, and you're unwilling to forgive someone a small debt. Now, isn't that an awesome story? I just made that up all on my own. <laughs> Let me tell you, I didn't make that story up. Jesus already told that story. It didn't involve a, a doggy spa. Jesus' story didn't involve Greer and Carla Patat and Citizens Building and Loan. But Jesus told the exact same story because he was talking about the fact that we are supposed to forgive one another. And he said to his, he said to his followers, he said, listen, God has forgiven you this great debt. Now you should forgive each other. And in the story, it's in Matthew chapter 18. You can read it for yourself this afternoon. Matthew 18, 32 and 33, the end of the story when the guy has refused to forgive, he goes back before the person that he owed the great debt to, and his master, and his master says this, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The reason that we should forgive is because we have been forgiven. We have to remember that we have been forgiven. And so when 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 Paul gives the, the directive there and he says, forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you, the reason that you should forgive these little offenses, and, they, and believe me, they're little offenses. The thing that you're so upset with about the person that, that you serve with on Sunday morning or the people that you go to life group with or the, or the people that you, that, you, that, that you sit near in the worship service, the thing that you're so upset with about them, it's, it's a small thing. And you've been forgiven of this great thing. And so God says, if you've been forgiven of all this, shouldn't you forgive this little small thing that happened just because someone offended you? And God doesn't say this, but I would add this. Maybe you're too easily offended. That's a cliff version that would be added on the end of that that God didn't say. See, he says there that we should forgive each other as God and Christ forgave you. So, so we need to ask the same question that we asked two weeks ago. Two weeks ago we said, okay... We're supposed to love each other as Jesus loved us. How does Jesus love us? So here's the next question. If we're supposed to forgive each other as, as Christ forgave us, how does Jesus forgive? It's real simple. If you're taking notes, write down this one sentence. Jesus forgives immediately, completely, and repeatedly. Jesus forgives immediately, completely, and repeatedly. That's different than the way we forgive. I don't know how long you've been dealing with people, but that's generally not how we forgive one another. See, it says that, that Jesus forgives us immediately. You know how we forgive? 
Someone does something to us, and we'll say, I mean, it's going to take me a while to get over that. They hurt me too bad. I might eventually forgive them, but it's going to take a while. Because and what that really means is, what you're really saying there is, I'm enjoying holding on to this. I'm enjoying being hurt right now. When I'm tired of being hurt about this, I'm, then I'll forgive them. But that's not the way Jesus forgives. Imagine if on the cross, Jesus is being crucified on the cross and he's got a thief on either side of him and one of them says to him, while they're dying, one of them says, please forgive me, allow me to be with you in paradise. What if Jesus had said, uh, it's going to take me a while, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, today you'll be with me. And Jesus says the same thing to you. When you do something and you ask for forgiveness, he never says to you, uh, that was too bad. That was rough. It's going to be three or four years. Come back then. No, Jesus forgives immediately, and so we should forgive one another immediately. Jesus also forgives completely. That's not what we do. What we, the way we forgive is we say, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. That's not complete forgiveness. I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. You know, in the book of Psalms, uh, it says that, that God forgives us so completely that he takes our sin and he separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. That's complete forgiveness. And then, then the last one I think might be the hardest for us is that Jesus forgives repeatedly. See, we have limits on how much we'll forgive. We might not have figured it out, but we get to a point in where it's like, that's it. Now, those limits are different based on the person and based on what they've done. You'll forgive your kid a lot longer than you'll forgive somebody else's kid. Uh, you'll forgive someone a lot longer than you will other things based on what they've done. If they've done something that just is kind of aggravating or based on something they've really done seriously, you might not continue to forgive them. <coughs> but Jesus forgives us repeatedly. In fact, at the beginning of that story... Uh, in Matthew 18, when, when, uh, before, Pe before Jesus tells the story that I just told you, uh, Peter is talking about it, and Peter says to Jesus, Hey, uh, Jesus, how much should I forgive my brother? So again, what are we talking about? We're talking about other believers. We're talking about people like us, church folks. Peter says, How many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? Now let me tell you why Peter said that. Peter was showing off. For his buddies. Because do you know what the Jewish tradition said that you should do? The Jewish tradition said three. Three strikes and you're out. So Peter is going to show off, hey, y'all boys only forgive three times. Let me watch how Jesus is about to be impressed with me because I doubled it and added one. Check this out. Hey, Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? And Peter's expecting Jesus to go, oh, Peter, you are much more holy than even I am because even I only forgive three times. But what has Jesus said? Not seven times, but 77 times. Now, did Jesus literally mean 77? Yes, he did. And so you have to keep track of it. I suggest getting a spreadsheet. No, Jesus didn't literally mean 77. If he meant 77 times, I've been married to Sherry 24 years. I would have bypassed that a long time ago. I'd be in trouble. Jesus said, you forgive repeatedly. So 7, 77, 7,777, 7 million. What he said is, you continue to forgive. Now again, I told you at the beginning, this isn't easy. I'm not making this up like I got this all together and telling y'all, hey, y'all are a bunch of unforgiving losers. You need to be like me. It's hard. It's hard to forgive repeatedly. 
And so we have to remember that we have been forgiven because it's not natural to forgive the way Jesus forgives us. It's not natural for us to forgive repeatedly, completely. It's not natural. Immediately. I had a different section of the sermon I was going to teach before the events of this last week. Um, we were at the beach last week when, when all this, this stuff happened. and um, So we were watching the news and reading you know, on iPads all the reports and stuff. And the day that that, that boy who killed those folks, the day that he had his hearing, and I know you probably already saw this in the news, but the day that he had his hearing, they allowed the victims' families to speak. Nine people killed. Every family member of the victim that spoke said the same thing. They told this boy that had walked into a church, pulled out a gun, and killed their family members with cold, in cold blood. They stood there and said to him, I forgive you. They said, it hurts, I'm angry, but I want you to know that I forgive you. And they even went on to say, here's why I'm forgiving you. Because Jesus has forgiven me. I'm going to tell you something. If people that have had that done to them can forgive the person that committed the act, why in the world should we ever hold on to some kind of grudge among people of, of ourselves? Nobody in here has done anything to you even resembling what that is. So if you've got unforgiveness in your hearts, there is no excuse for you holding on to it. None whatsoever. We've seen it lived out this week in the real world. You know, part of that story that, that just got all over me when I read it. <clears throat> you know, the first part of this verse, Ephesians 4.32, says, Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And I don't know if you read this part of the story, but it said that the boy went in there. He knew what he was going in there to do. He had planned it out. And he sat in there for an hour. And he said that he almost didn't go through with it because of how kind everybody in there was to him. So here's a, a small group of people coming together to study God's Word. Somebody walks in that's different than them, doesn't look like they do. They don't know who he is. You know how they treated him? They treated him like one of them. And that's exactly what the church should always do. One of the things that I pray about all the time about this church is that when people walk in those doors on Sunday morning, that they will be greeted like family, whether it's the first time they've been here or the 500th time they've been here. We have to as a church. We have to stay unified. We have to forgive one another. And we have to treat people with kindness and be tender-hearted towards them. If we're ever going to accomplish the mission of helping people discover true freedom that only comes from Jesus Christ.
It's the only hope we've got. We're, um, we're getting ready to enter into a challenging time as a church. I have one message left next week to teach you as your pastor, and then I will no longer be the pastor of this church. And it's going to be a challenging time. Not because I'm so awesome, but it's going to be a challenging time because it's going to be unknown. And it's going to be a time where, if we're not careful, the unity of this church can be split into more than two, three, four different ways. And so we need to remember the words of Ephesians 4.32. You're going to have different opinions on what should happen next. There's going to be some of you that think you should, we should have a replacement pastor in here the next week. There's going to be others of you that think, no, we need to wait a long time before we have another one. There's going to be some of you that when the, guy, the next guy gets here, you're going to say, well, it shouldn't have been him. There's going to be others of you that say, no, he's the perfect guy and he's way better than Cliff was anyway. And then someone else is going to say, you can't say that about Cliff. We love Cliff. And then somebody else is going to say, well, I never really cared for Cliff that much. And then it, it's just, it, can, it can just all go downhill, all right? And so it's going to be a time where there's going to be differences of opinion. And like I told you, 25 years of serving on church staff, you're going to disagree about some stuff. That time's coming. But when you're offended, forgive. Forgive as God in Christ forgave you. When you're the one who does the offending, be willing to say, I blew it. I'm sorry. Please, uh, please understand that I'm, I'm not perfect. I want to see this church over the next several months come together closer than it ever has we need to stay unified we need to stay unified behind our leadership you've got strong elder leadership and strong staff they're going to need your unity more than ever I've said this before and I'll say it today and you're going to hear me say it again next Sunday I truly believe the best chapters of the Freedom Fellowship story have yet to be written. The best is still yet to come. But what you're going to have to do as partners and as attenders here at this church is you have to fiercely maintain the unity of this church. Ephesians 4.3, Paul said to maintain the unity of the church and it's going to be hard and you're going to have to be fierce and you're going to have to be fearless and you're going to have to face some challenges but you're going to have to do it together and the way to do that is to begin by forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you let's pray Father God I thank you so much that words written to a church on a different continent uh, in a different culture, at a different time in history, are, uh, are so clear and, and true for what we need to hear today in, in our church. And so I, I pray, Father, that as, um, as we look to the future here, that, that we would be sure that we are doing all we can to maintain the unity of this church. Father, we're going to hurt each other's feelings. That's what we do as believers uh, we're not going to agree but I pray that when those times come and, and they will I, I pray that we would forgive one another that we'd remember that we're forgiven and we'll remember that we've been forgiven immediately and completely and repeatedly help us to show that same grace 
to one another. Help us to truly forgive one another, to love one another, to live in community with one another, to do all the things we're going to continue to talk about this summer. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.